All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Yeah, we've got Amy DeRoss on the show today. Who is Amy? I am incredibly excited to welcome Amy to the show. So Amy is the founder and CEO of a company by the name of Vanetti, um, which we'll get into in a minute. But actually before founding Vanetti, Amy focused on healthcare, new business creation at GE Ventures, at Healthy Imagination. Uh, prior to GE, Amy was the chief business officer at Navigenics. It was a genomics company that I believe sold to Life Technologies. Uh, she was also uh, a co-founder and the executive director of uh, CIRM and Proposition 71, where I spent some time working. Amy and I did not overlap there, but one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to Amy today is she has such a, a long history in the field of regenerative medicine, cell and gene therapy. I think she brings a really unique sort of 30,000-foot perspective to the field. Um, and then I'm really excited to dive into uh, her company, Vanetti, and what they're looking to do in terms of fulfill the promise of delivering you know, highly personalized therapies to patients. I, I remember, Amy, from those days at CIRM, what kind of visibility do you think that gives her into the types of issues Vanetti is trying to tackle today? Well, I think it gives her some some critical visibility. Um, so, you know, she was one of the architects behind Prop 71. And if you think about the promise of, of CIRM um, and Prop 71, right, at its core, the promise of CIRM funding was to deliver novel therapies to, to patients. Um, and so, uh, you know, my understanding is that's still very much what Amy is trying to do at Vanetti. She's just approaching in a slightly different angle, and she's going through trying to solve some fundamental infrastructure problems now at Vanetti. But the goal is still the same, is still to deliver therapies to patients. And it was still her goal from her days at CIRM. Still sounds like that's her goal at Vanetti. Um, it's just a slightly different approach to how she's going about doing it. For listeners not familiar with Vanetti, what exactly does it do? Yeah, so uh, Vanetti is a company that has developed some software, I believe it's enterprise-level software, to help control supply chain logistics for the delivery of cell and gene therapies. So if you think about how you need to track the uh, a, a product, in this case, let's say a, autologous cell th therapy from manufacturing it all the way to the patient bedside and the infusion of that therapy. My understanding is Vanetti's uh, technology platform helps to create unique IDs to track the, the cell therapy as the product from the manufacturing you know, plant, essentially, or where it's manufactured, all the way to it being infused in the, in the patient. Um, and so this is, this is all pretty novel. It's all relatively complex, and, and it's all very different infrastructure 
than what currently exists in the supply chain of delivering small molecules or you know, biologics, for example. So it's pretty complex stuff, but it's critically important in the delivery uh, of you know, more personalized medicines. Well, if you're all ready, let's do it. Hi, Amy. I'm incredibly excited to welcome you to the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's delightful to be with you. So today we are going to talk about cell and gene therapies, the promise of personalized medicine, and dig into an area that people probably don't spend enough time thinking about, although given what's happened with the rollout of the COVID vaccines, certainly deserves a lot more attention than it gets. And that's the complexity of the supply chain, logistics, and the delivery of complex and novel medicines. Um, I'd love to better understand how Vanetti's approach and software is designed to drive and scale the delivery of you know, personalized therapies within the regen med field. Um, however, before we dive into that, um, you and I have some shared background from our days at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. We never actually overlapped there, but you've been in the regenerative medicine space, I think, for most of your career. Um, I'd love to just dive into a little bit of your background, um, your experience within the field in general, and then what led you to the founding of Vanetti and the realization that there was a problem that needed to be solved. Well, th thank you, Amy. I mean, it's a great background. And I, I think you approach things from a, a fairly unique angle um, in terms of bringing the patient perspective. Um, you mentioned sort of early in, in your career and sort of what led you to, 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 to be one of the architects behind Prop 71 and the creation of CIRM. Can you, can you talk a little bit about having that sort of patient perspective, you know, the patient advocate, advocacy perspective, excuse me, and how that has influenced sort of what you're looking to do at Vanetti and, and sort of what you've done over your career? Because I, I think that is a really valuable um, perspective that uh, more people have these days, but it wasn't as common, you know, five or 10 years ago. Totally agree. And, you know, Proposition 71 was the first initiative in history to really establish such a broad coalition of patient advocates and advocacy groups, along with leading scientists and academics and the industry partners we had. But the primary focus was really uh, for patients by patients. That's really where the founding group uh, came together was all around uniting uh, support for, for patient-focused research and then translation and then extension of that research into clinic. Um, so I do think the power of patients, and we've seen other movements, notably HIV, breast cancer, there's just a phenomenal uh, rare disease, phenomenal groundswell of patients sort of taking ownership of the phenomenal, you know, uh, just just force of, of medical science. And we've seen, again, so many other paradigm shifting discoveries like, like CRISPR come into to view. But I do think that the particular point of personalization really brings into focus the, the role that patients play in a more meaningful and frankly unprecedented way than any other therapeutics area. Because with autologous therapies, for example, the patient is the primary substrate for the patient for the therapy, excuse me. So when patient equals product equals process, there's this very interesting kind of uh, differentiation and patient centricity that is also unprecedented. So I think it's, you know, I think it makes perfect sense. It's really aligned with for form following function here that patients are taking a front row seat and advocating 
for this phenomenal science and then its application to to improve uh, treatment of disease. I I think that um, patients have found their voice. I think it's been true in the last five or 10 years. I think, you know, Proposition 71 was just one piece of a mosaic of very forceful out in front patients sort of you know, taking control to some degree of their destiny, which is their right. I, I think that's so true and, and couldn't agree more. Um, and I, I want to dive into a couple of things that you, you had mentioned. I guess just so our listeners understand, you had mentioned the term autologous. Um, could you, just for our listeners, could you sort of compare or contrast this idea of autologous cell, cell therapy versus allogeneic? Is there one area where Vernetti is more or less focused on? Oh, absolutely. So uh, I think in more common parlance, CAR-T therapies, because they're now commercially available, a number of them um, have been more uh, more sort of popularized, perhaps. But um, principally what an autologous therapy is, is it's uh, a, a therapy that uh, revolves around a patient's own cells. That's where the auto prefix comes from. Um, and so uh, really essentially harnessing, harnessing a patient's own immune cells or T cells uh, to then genetically modify those cells to turn them into assassins, if you will, uh, re-enter uh, into the, the, the organism or the, the patient and then have those cells essentially do their work um, that they were set up to do, but in a highly uh, targeted fashion. So autologous workflows versus allogeneic, which is when uh, a donor cell is introduced again genetically modified so that it becomes an assassin cell as well. Uh, it just doesn't originate from the patient's own cells, rather from a donor cells. But the, the the principles are similar. It's really taking the the primary sort of workhorse in the body, T cells that defend um, us from disease, and putting them to work in a much more targeted, much more efficient. Um, you know, sort of deadly assassin way to to eradicate disease. And, and so, obviously, the the this um, this group of therapies are, are much more complex than, let's say, traditional small molecules or even biologics. Could could you then talk about some of the complexities in terms of the development, manufacturing, the delivery of these types of cell and gene therapies, and 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 what's needed that it maybe doesn't exist today um, in, in sort of large pharma or in biotech through the delivery of traditional small molecules or, or biologics? Yeah, absolutely. So Neil, you started out this conversation with saying, you know, uh, the, the supply chain side or the production and delivery of, of really groundbreaking medical science doesn't always sort of get the same coverage or visibility as the underlying science itself. And I understand that there's uh, the science is absolutely flabbergasting, <laughs> but one of the things that I think our industry, particularly in the last five years, is really uh, waking up to, if you will. And then I do agree with you, the COVID uh, situation, both on the testing and vaccination distribution front, really uh, burdened our existing uh, broader pharma supply chain. I think there's been a renewed emphasis even more so on improving the infrastructure overall, not just for our market here in cell and gene therapy. One of the fundamental paradigms that is different about cell and gene therapies versus every other therapeutic area that has come before is that the healthcare providers, the clinicians, the apheresis nurses, the OR surgeons and technicians, 
who are administering uh, to these patients are actually implicated in the manufacturing process. So what that really means is there's this principle of good manufacturing or GMP, good manufacturing principle, that is now, it's, a, it's really a compliance regimen that usually governs manufacturing facilities. In our market, in cell and gene therapies, that GMP uh, regulatory oversight is extended into clinic. And that is unprecedented. That is a new paradigm shift where you're actually asking clinicians to participate in manufacturing. Typically, clinicians order, they requisition a therapy or a drug, and that drug is fulfilled outside of the hospital or clinic and then, uh, you know, received and administered on site to a patient. That just doesn't exist in our market. It's um, the patient is the uh, the sort of patient-centric approach to this medicine, the, the, their healthcare provider is a participant in manufacturing. So what that really means is you have a dependency in the supply chain that hasn't existed before. And therefore, the regulators in their wisdom, FDA and their counterparts elsewhere in the world, have said to pharmaceutical thera therapeutic, or excuse me, pharma uh, companies, you must orchestrate this supply chain in a different way than in any other therapeutic uh, environment. And that really means you have to assign a unique patient identifier for every single process, because again, the process is the product with autologous therapies we were just talking about or allogeneic therapies we were just, just describing. The process is the product. And so in that, in that, uh, in that, in that paradigm, you really need to ensure there's a level of orchestration across the supply chain that only software can convey. So it's actually the first time in the history of biologics that there is a regulatory requirement for software for commercial approval in a, in a market. And that is really, again, to acknowledge we have so much complexity where you're literally treating each patient individually and you need to assign a unique identifier to that patient that follows the patient's care pathway and life cycle for that therapeutic from the <clears throat> beginning to the very end and even post infusion, uh, because essentially we are modifying parts of uh, genetic, uh, genetically modifying parts of an organism or a patient. So we always have to have that ability to tag back to a patient to ensure first and foremost, that the right patient is receiving the right therapy at the right time, because uh, God forbid, Neil, if you get my cell therapy or I get yours, it could and likely would be a deadly event. Um, and also to have that uh, view and tracking capability over time so that as that patient continues on their in their life cycle, uh, post-infusion of a cell and gene therapy, we can monitor them we can check on their progresses and we can really use the information as that patient continues on to really supercharge future discovery. So there's a whole realm of frankly new requirements that this cell and gene therapy uh, market is introducing that the old infrastructure in pharma really wasn't set up to deal with, particularly at scale. And so that's where you know companies like Vinetti and others are entering, uh, are entering the fray here.
I think it's it's really fascinating. I mean, as as we know well, just from the COVID pandemic, right? The infrastructure and the supply chain logistics. You know, without that having uh, being in place in a fa- uh, sufficient fashion, right? Patients are never going to receive the therapies, never going to receive the vaccine. So this is a critical point in delivering therapies to patients and patients gaining access. So I know Vanetti has developed, I think, what you call a personalized therapy management platform. Um, could you talk a little bit about what that is? It sounds like what you just described is part of this therapy management platform. But for our listeners, could you could you describe a little bit about what that platform is and then how, uh, if at all, it exists into sort of existing workflow? Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. So the personalized therapy management platform, I affectionately call my fourth baby because I have three children. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and I'm so proud to talk about it, um, just as I am my, my human children. But the, um, the personalized therapy manage, manager pl- platform is an, is a built for purpose enterprise platform as a service. So what that really means is it's a fully configurable, fully extensible software platform that allows a level of, of flexibility and control and transparency into a workflow. And so what we do is this platform, the PTM platform automates workflows at its core, assigns a digital chain of identity to each patient batch, to each product, meaning each therapeutic. Um, Again, back to that primary function of allowing for right patient, right therapy, right time, ensuring patient safety but also really aligning the supply chain. And that really means, again, in addition to the healthcare providers, the clinicians I spoke about earlier, all of the cold chain providers, the specialty couriers, the hub managers, there's so many different stakeholders who are required to have, frankly, a view into a single batch process where again, that chain of identity is the linchpin that allows for all of these different stakeholders to have real time and right time supervision over uh, the manufacturing and production line. That again, it only exists, especially in a market like ours, which is unprecedented for its complexity for, for all the reasons we've talked about. Again, because each therapy is specific to a patient, um, that you really need to have transparency and control at every step of the process. I think the um, the the opportunity here it's it's very interesting. Again, COVID has changed our lives, um, unfortunately, uh, tragically, and I do think the learning opportunity on the the relatively positive side is how can we take some of these learnings and apply them more broadly, the power of enterprise software, of truly configurable software, software, not customized software, but software that adjusts and adapts as workflows adjust adjust and adapt, adapt. And workflows adjust and adapt in our market by nature because of the individualized nature of these protocols. And so it's, um, it's a huge opportunity, I think, where again, you've got a pharmaceutical sector we sit at the sort of bleeding edge of innovation uh, in terms of the, the medical uh, science and the mechanisms under the hood with CRISPR and all the other technologies contributing here. How can we take some of these learnings and then really spread them across the broader pharma distribution chain? Because that, that has been demonstrated here as having real deficiencies. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, one of the questions that, that comes to mind is, at, at what stage should companies be thinking about implementing this type of technology? And, and I'll just make maybe a not great analogy, but as we think about, um, you know, manufacturing and, and CMC and, you know, as you said, you know, the process is the product, you know, comp there's often a tension for early stage companies to invest in manufacturing versus put all their research into and all their resource, resources, excuse me, into racing towards clinical proof of concept. But oftentimes you're not going to achieve clinical proof of concept without investing first in the manufacturing process because you're going to have a, a more pure product, for example, which will increase the probability of you achieving clinical success. But there's always that tension. As you think about when companies should implement this type of technology, is it preclinical? Is it clinical? Is it, is it really reserved for commercial stage companies? I'd love to understand that a little, a little better. It's such a great question. And, um, you know, again, when you have process equivalent to product, I think the way in which you're producing and delivering is inherently uh, prioritized. It has to be. So I think our rule of thumb, to answer your question really directly, Neil, our rule of thumb is anytime you're in clinical phase with 10 or more patients, you really need to introduce that uh, the sophistication and control of a chain of identity platform. And so we work with customers who are in, you know, global commercial phase, but who are also in phase one. And frankly, we are being asked to advise in even pre-IND settings. Back to your, your fundamental question is how important is the process? How important is the manufacturing setup and system uh, programming overall when, again, the, the sort of primary um, meat and potatoes here is the actual mechanism of action. I think uh, we're seeing that there's differentiation potential in, and there are real compatibility concerns as you move through the R&D life cycle. And those are being called out increasingly with CMC um, call outs by FDA and others, their counterparts, more so than I would say the first wave of CAR-T, the sort of CGT 1.0, uh, the Kim Rise and the Escartes of the world. When we started our company, our first customer and really our collabor collab collaborator was Kite Pharma. And that was before they launched Yascarta, we were part of their BLA. What the leadership, of the, the primary leadership and founding leadership of the Kite Pharma team understood really inherently was their whole manufacturing effort, their tech ops, all of their clinical operations, everything was being, all of the typical functions were being asked to not only participate differently, but align with one another in ways they historically in small molecule and other markets hadn't been asked to do. And so that really prompted, again, the founding leadership of Kite Pharma to say, look, we need to invest in ways not only to promote alignment across these, you know, historically sort of disparate functions, but we also need to invest in what the build for purpose to support this alignment is going to look like, because it's just not on the market. We're just so new. Uh, I think they were rewarded for that investment, frankly, as they were um, brought under the Gilead umbrella. But I do, I do think it represents the uh, sort of forward-looking thinking, recognizing that the infrastructure is not set up to scale these therapies as it is today. It requires even more investment than we've seen to date. Uh, the world of uh, closed loop manufacturing, there's a ton of investment there, the CDMO segment. It's still not enough. <laughs> so we still have a lot more work to do as an industry. 
but I think that fundamental recognition that not only is it more important than in other uh, other, other therapeutic areas to really understand that manufacturing and IT system and the broader quality systems and how they're all going to interrelate. It's actually part of the, the value of the company to figure that out, invest in that part of it is along with the, the pure scientific discovery. Yeah, and and I agree. I think that that's really critical. And you had mentioned Kite, and you know Juno was another you know early developer of CAR Ts. You know, if we fast forward to today, right, the cell and gene therapy companies are are really evolving almost at a breakneck pace uh, these days. There's tons of capital flowing into the sector. Uh, it's, I mean, it's really wonderful to see. But how does that affect what what you're doing? How are you able to adjust your software, your business to the growing needs and growing demands of an industry that that's frankly changing, you know, at warp speed? Yeah, it's such a well, it's such a great problem to have. I and speaking as someone who's been advocating for personalized and regenerative medicine my whole career, I'm just so um, honored and delighted to be alive at this moment in history. Um, I do think that there's, um, you know, there's there's a huge opportunity here to invest in the picks and axes more broadly. Um, I think that you're seeing a conviction from the capital markets on the therapeutic side, and then very quickly also uh, the realization that, you know, we can't consume this remarkable science without heavy investment on the infrastructure side. One of the key parts of really making sure we do tool our, our company here uh, in our view as an enabler of a broader industrialization of this market is that we've made heavy investments. Our, our first instance, if you will, of the PTM or the personalized therapy management platform was our kite instance. We built a, a sort of um, go-to-market uh, first version one to support Yescarta and a few other customers and really learned a tremendous amount with um, you know shoulder to shoulder with those partners and took a, a tremendous amount of investment into a much broader, much more sophisticated enterprise-grade, global, extensible, configurable platform. We were very fortunate to hire Phil Calvin, our CTO, who built the Salesforce platform last decade was um, after selling one of his, his own companies into Salesforce really understands extensibility, configurability. Configurability really means um, the, the, the capability to not, to not customize, frankly. It means to change and adapt workflows within a modular uh, enterprise environment so that as workflow adjustments happen, which are inevitable in our field, you absolutely will have adjustments even in commercial phase to the requirements to support these therapies. So rather than having to reinvent wheels in order to change and, and adjust to different requirements as they be, as they evolve, you can just configure them. You're all in a single platform. It makes it very simple and efficient to essentially keep pace with the requirement evolution as, as we move through these products and we hybridize, that's what's happening more and more in our market, we're seeing a lot of mixing and matching of different mechanisms, PCVs, NKs, all sorts of things. Um, and so you can't just have a static system. You have to have a system that's flexible and adaptable. Uh, and fortunately, we have been able to raise the capital necessary to invest in the sort of version two of PTM, which is the version that's live now. And inherent in that architecture, again, with our laser focus on this problem of automating chain of identity for these highly 
valuable, highly personalized therapies, we have lots more room for growth because we've been investing in the primary foundation of the platform. So we're we're ready to 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 kind of flywheel this on behalf of the industry. We saw a bit of a slowdown just because naturally in COVID, the uh, prioritization for COVID patients who needed ICU access continue to do so, slowed down some of the protocols we support, but just delayed them by about two or three quarters. As you mentioned, the market is just unbelievably frothy and excited uh, about supporting these therapies. And so we're in this interesting place where we're beginning to see a real uptick in interest in participating in our platform um, getting these products, you know, out there, make sure, making sure they're safe, uh, working through all the, the clinical phases of development. So we're really excited and really optimistic. And Amy, I, I want to pick up on on a thread that you mentioned because I think you you bring such a unique perspective to the field. I mean, the the promise of regenerative medicine has been something you, as as you mentioned, you've been working on your entire career, really since you know helping to architect your know, Prop seventy one and the creation of CERM, right? Which at its core, you know, promised to deliver the types of novel therapies that that we're talking about, right? That you are still working on to this day at Vanetti. So I, I might I might put you on the spot here, but if you if you had a crystal ball with the caveat that all predictions are wrong, where where do you see the field of of cell therapy, regenerative medicine going over the next five or 10 years? And, and really even more specifically, if you had to guess, I mean, do you think cell therapies are going to be more widely accessible and used in the practice of everyday medicine in, in the relatively near term? Oh, I absolutely do. I think we're going to see, I mean, I think the holy grail in our field, in addition to some of the rare disease focused efforts is uh, our, our tumor cell uh, applications. We have a number of liquid tumor uh, opportunities here and they're developing rapidly. I do want to say one of the other, uh, I, again, I hate the term silver lining with the tragedy of the, the scale that we're seeing still um, unfold with the COVID-19 pandemic. The primacy of the mRNA platform in addressing COVID via their vac the vaccine uh, development. And again, that rapid cycle development, not only was it just uh, remarkable science led by BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna and others, there are other folks really who've been working on MR mRNA for the last couple of decades. Uh, but the work has really come to a level of fruition. And again, um, urgent uh, situations demand urgent solutions. And we've just, we've just seen a remarkable cross-collaboration, international effort to get these amazing, truly miraculous vaccines in place. And I think there's some really interesting opportunities for uh, mRNA specifically. We're looking at this sort of companion opportunities with some of the other cell therapies. Can the mRNA uh, vaccine approach also be booster? We still are struggling to understand why even in the sort of V1 of CAR-T therapies, the autologous cell therapies we were talking about earlier, some patients who appear to fit the profile have no efficacy. Uh, many more patients are actually being cured, which is fantastic. Uh, but there's a growing body of evidence that suggests perhaps even an mRNA vaccine booster could be um, uh, uh, appropriate and helpful for some of the patients who aren't showing as much responsiveness to just uh, the, the cell therapy administration alone. That's just one of a million opportunities, right? I'm so excited about personalized cancer vaccines, about 
the neoantigens strategies, the um, all of the the science is just iterating in excess of Moore's law. So I I have true conviction, just as I have, you know, or from the early days of pre-CERN, that there is really something here that is going to massively reduce human suffering. I think the other part of this, and you asked me about the outlook for the next five and 10 years, uh, I think that we do see a real continuity of funding coming forward for how to consume these therapies. So obviously where we play, we spend a lot of time uh, focused in the, the 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 supply chain, but I do think that some of the sheer brain power that is being and the capital behind that brain power that is coming in and looking at vertical integration and really investing in some of those shop floor tools and those those um, you know I think that that my only hope in seeing a broad set of convicted partners with various core competencies is that we can as an industry respect those core competencies because I can speak from our own experience with just chain of identity, chain of custody as one slice of a much broader set of uh, ecosystem issues, this is not for the faint of heart, right? This is, uh, <laughs> we, eat, we eat humble pie every day. And I think we're continuously learning. You need to have that growth mindset in this marketplace because again, when process is product and process is changeable and, and evolving, you're going to have to evolve alongside of it. And the only way I see this really coming together in the next five to 10 year time frame is if we can coordinate as an industry, respect those core competencies, merge those core competencies. But there needs to be so much focus, laser focus on all of these various problems in the chain to solve and build for purpose. So that's my only kind of call out to the industry for anyone who's listening today is, um, great that we have the capital, great we have the focus. The science, I'm actually just not worried about at all. I'm just so excited. I've like buckle up to see what happens next. But if we can't figure out how to consume and extend and scale out the science, we won't see a market in an industry. We won't see a standard of care in the next five to 10 years. I do believe we'll see it eventually because once you've unleashed the genie out of this bottle, it's going to find a way I just think it it uh, it can happen sooner if we could coordinate better. Well, and and to your point, Amy, I mean, I think the the what the pandemic has clearly shown is that the industry is capable of collaborating, and when the industry collaborates, things can literally move you know a hundred x faster than what they ordinarily do. So it is possible, and I, and I agree. If we apply that level of collaboration and vigor to everything within healthcare, we would see tremendous progress, um, much faster than we ordinarily would. So I, I would agree with your call out uh, in terms of collaborating. A Amy, I think we could probably spend the next two days talking about uh, about these topics. Um, but with that, I would like to uh, just wrap up and, and uh, extend my thanks uh, for joining me on the show today and a really thoughtful and, and, and great discussion. Oh, Neil, thanks so much for the opportunity. Good luck with this series. I can't wait to listen to more of your recordings. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a wonderful discussion with Amy. Um, you know, I, I think we heard her talk a lot about uh, the field in general, how it's progressed from the early days when she was sort of the architect behind Prop 71 and CERM to where the field is now. You know, there's still a whole host of challenges 
Um, there's a lot of capital that's flown that, that that's um, that's been put into the space recently, which is which is really great. However, there needs to be investment in the supply chain, the logistics, the delivery of these types of technologies. Right. You heard Amy say so many people pay attention to the science. Right. That's the headline. And rightfully so. Right. The science is, is sexy. But the nuts and bolts of how that science is delivered to the patient bedside is really critical. And that's some of the, the some of the maybe not as sexy stuff, but like critical stuff that Vanetti is working on. Um, and so I think it was really nice to hear her perspective about how the software, the supply chain, the logistics, the infrastructure fits into the broader ecosystem and why it's so critically important. Supply chain management isn't something most people think about outside of the industry. What do you think we've learned from COVID about the supply chain? Yeah, I think we've learned an awful lot. I think we've learned from the, the, the COVID uh, issues in terms of supply chain delivery of vaccines that it is critically important, right? It, it, I mean, it's, it's obvious that no therapies are going to be delivered to patients without the proper infrastructure, without the supply chain, without the you know proper tracking and logistics. Um, and that is, for whatever reason, it still sort of astounds me that that wasn't paid more attention to with the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccines, right? Um, so that's, that's something that Venetti is working on in the field of cell and gene therapy. And, and that, that's going to be critical to the delivery of these novel therapies. So you know, hopefully there's going to be enough, you know, forethought put into the delivery of these therapies that we don't run into similar issues. Obviously, we don't have a huge um, uh, urgency like we did with the COVID pandemic. Um, but Venetti is trying to tackle some of these really critical issues, um, because at the end of the day, if this stuff isn't right, then patients aren't going to be getting the therapies. Supply chain software is well established within industry and, and within the drug industry. How specialized is cell and gene therapy with regards to what Vanetti is doing? What well, makes this different? Yeah, I mean, you heard Amy talk a little bit about this. I mean, j- just the whole the, – the, the product itself is just very different than more traditional products, whether they're small molecules, whether they're biologics. Um, you know, in, in many ways, you heard Amy talk about this, this idea that the, 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 the process is the product. So the process of how the cells are manufactured is is the end product. And so that's just a very different way of, of thinking, right? What we are delivering at the end of the day are living cells, which themselves act as the drug or therapeutic. And so as you can imagine, to try to deliver you know, living medicines is just a very different proposition um, than what you know, exists in sort of, I guess what I call more mainstream or what has exist you know, historically in the industry. So it's not surprising given how differentiated these products are that they require, require highly specialized and differentiated infrastructure and supply chain to deliver them. I think – Many people who are excited by the potential of gene therapies and cell therapies often focus on the challenge of scaling up the science and and the production. What role do you think Vanetti can play in that? Yeah, I mean, I think they play a critical role. I mean, people are very focused on on the scale up, the scale out of manufacturing, and rightfully so. There's a lot of challenges. But as you heard Amy talk about, right, I mean, the, the role that Venetti can play can be relatively early on, even in clinical development of a lot of these therapies. Because if you don't get that right as you're in the clinic, 
right? You're just not setting yourself up for future success. And so just as people think about scaling up manufacturing, investing in that early on, investing in this type of infrastructure and the software that Veneti has developed is also seems to be, you know, highly critical early on, right? Once you're a commercial organization, that's, I don't want to say it's too late, but, you know, arguably it's too late to start thinking about that. You should have thought about that very early on, probably in, you know, a phase one clinical trial, for example. Well, until next time. Great. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.